Hello, I'm Danny Duran, and this is the Infinite Jigsaw Podcast, a place for honest conversation, discovery, and a genuine incentive to improve sense making. In today's episode, I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Andrew Pinson. Andrew is a research director of the Ramsey Centre for Science and Religion at the Faculty of Theology and Religion, University of Oxford. Formerly a particle physicist on the Delphi experiment at CERN, he has degrees in philosophy, in theology and a second doctorate in philosophy. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Pleased to have you here. Um, now, just before we go into your work and other related topics, could you please tell us a bit about your early life? Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Um, I've lived most of my life um, near London. Um, my father worked in the computer industry and the M4 corridor is where most of the computer companies uh, oh. are located. Um, I went to Oxford University uh, to study physics. I wanted to be an astronaut. I discovered there were no jobs for astronauts <laughs> in the United Kingdom. Um, but I thought, well, I'm not quite sure what to do. Let me study physics because that's the subject which opened opened up modern science really uh, and i can i can keep my options open for later on mm. Mm. Uh, while there at oxford i discovered uh, not outer space but inner space uh, and there's a whole world down in the basement of reality that's um, almost infinite really to explore mm. and um, i got involved in particle physics and i did a doctorate in particle physics at the cern laboratory in geneva and also at oxford seven years of business and then i uh, had a call to become a priest i believe a supernatural call to become a priest and i did a cost benefit analysis decided this was the best investment of my life and um ended up uh, with a second education in the humanities philosophy and theology particularly mm. and uh, now i'm back at oxford and faculty of theology so uh, i've okay. had a roundabout career I'm about to, i moved two streets in the last 30 years <laughs> Well, that's some journey to move two streets. Well, the following questions, I don't think are going to really take advantage of the depth of your knowledge, but I'm going to sort of have a go, see if I can pique your interest anyway. Um, and I'd like to first ask you actually about beginnings. Great emphasis is taken in theology and religious thought about the roots of things, uh, such as the description of, of our planet being created with the Genesis story and also tales about our human nature, as reiterated to us in the Adam and Eve story, that we're all susceptible to temptation. So I wondered what importance you put to our understanding of beginnings and our base nature and how the cultural memory serves society. Well, I think uh, the study of beginnings is very important and it's part of the study of philosophy, which is natural for human beings. Mm. Uh, so children are natural philosophers. So that's why they ask why questions all the time. Anyone with a young child will know that that child will ask why questions all the time at certain ages. And why uh, is to ask why is to ask for the, the causes of the being of things. That's why the response to a why question is because. Uh, because. Because so, so what are the causes of the being of things? And one kind of cause is... Uh, is of course concerned with where, where do I come from and where does the world come from? Mm. Uh, so it's natural in us to want to answer those questions and it helps to uh, shape how we live and how we orient our lives. 
Now, Genesis, I always regard Genesis as a revealed symbolic history. All three words are important. Revealed symbolic history. It is quite different in tone to uh, other creation stories and myths uh, of the human race. And it's incredibly important for wisdom. If you want an example of that today, uh, look at Jordan Peterson's lectures on Genesis, uh, which are done from a psychological perspective. And it's... It's immense. I mean, the amount of material it gets out of Genesis is immense, um, as has attracted millions of listeners and viewers. Uh, so, you know, these stories are very, very rich um, for understanding ourselves, our, our background and our destiny. I'm really pleased that you bring up Jordan Peterson there. I think that many of the, the people that listen to this podcast and other related podcasts and have this emerging curiosity about Christianity that was brought about by Jordan Peterson's Bible lectures. And right. uh, he's part of the, the, the gateway into this way of thinking. Yes, absolutely. And and he, he in lecturing on Genesis, he tries to lecture from a, a natural perspective. He doesn't assume any prior beliefs about what is supernatural. Uh, and you know, even with those constraints, as it were, he draws out an immense amount of wisdom. Uh, so it just, uh, yes, he's, he's doing a good job. And his, you know, his project today is a, is a good one. Yeah, of course, I completely agree. Now, I'd like to go on and ask you about pride, um, which is something that's I've been wrestling with mm. recently. And I'd, I'd like to ask you why the Christian teaching appears to be so full of warning against taking pride in one's thoughts and actions, mm. because to my mind, I noticed that we live in an era kind of replete with excessive prideful behaviour. You could um, just point towards virtual signalling, you know, for instance, um, it seems to be particularly related. So I, j- I just wondered what your thoughts are on this. Yes, it's um, a rather deceptive area for a couple of reasons. First, it's not about um, doing yourself down. It's very important. A person can have humility. And that, and that person can know that he or she is great. And, uh, you just, that's, that's surprising generally to us, um, because we tend to think of pride as sort of doing yourself down. But that's not mm. it. And in fact, in Christianity, there is a, an almost forgotten, um, virtue of greatness called magnanimity. Uh, so there's a good pride, if you like, uh, called magnanimity, which is, yeah compatible with humility uh to, to try to make the distinction between magnanimity and pride it's easiest to look at the species of pride there are four species of pride and once once you analyze those you realize well of course this is a bad thing so the first one is attributing to oneself a good that one doesn't have that's like empty boasting it's the first species of pride the second species of pride is to attribute to oneself a good that one has but also regard oneself as having got it for oneself um, without any appreciation of the other people who made that greatness possible. The third species of pride is to say, I've got a greatness. I know it's come from someone else or others, but I deserved it. Um, And then the fourth species of pride is to say, I know I've got a greatness, I know it's come from others and that I don't deserve it, but I'm glad that others don't have it. Mm. Um, and 
once once you analyze the four species, you realize well, all this kind of pride is horrible. Um, and there are two consequences of this kind of you know, those four kinds of pride. One of which is that they they actually impede genuine greatness. That's the first thing. Uh, they all impede genuine greatness because you don't strive for real greatness if you if you've got pride. Uh, you're happy with your world. you you don't look outside your false understanding of yourself. And the second thing is all those kinds of pride are very damaging of friendship. It's very hard to be friends with a proud person. Um, mm. There's a person that only worships himself or herself. Uh, and if you want evidence of that, look on. Uh, any kind of online bookseller, and look up the word narcissism, and you'll find lots and lots of books, often written, uh, sadly, by angry women who've fallen in love with uh, narcissists uh, who only worship themselves, really, and uh, they've often uh, been disappointed in love as a result of that. So, so narcissism is on the rise, pride's on the rise, and we need to, I think, we need to recover a sense of what genuine greatness is, and it goes along with humility. Uh, there's a lovely phrase from uh, G.K. Chesterton. He said, um, you can't appreciate the mountains unless you can look up at them. Something along those lines. You can't appreciate mountains unless you can look up at them. Mm-hmm. And uh, pride traps us in a narrow world, uh, a small world, but to to appreciate greatness and to you become greater oneself, you need humility. Hmm. Yeah, I've got a, a proverb in front of me. Uh, it says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not <laughs> your own lips. If we're feeling good about something that we've done, an action or a behavior, a decision, how do we display that feeling of achievement? Do we wait until it's acknowledged or we do we not expect acknowledgement at all? I, I would try not to focus on oneself too much frankly so if one's whole obsession is how do i appropriately praise myself um that's too self-absorbed and humility helps us to put those things in perspective which we look for example no matter how great we are someone else will be greater yeah uh that's the first thing uh no matter how much we've achieved um we could achieve more so getting things into perspective uh is important and also, you know, our society is is suffering from eye strain. <laughs> you know, focus on the first person perspective, and we really need to think of the second person perspective, the the you. And to be too obsessed with I, even for good reasons, is uh, is unhealthy. I think. Okay. Well, having said that, what about affirming positive behaviour in children? On the one hand, being careful not to fill them full of prideful you know, inclinations, but on the other hand, making sure that they know what that when they're doing it right, they are doing it right. Oh, gosh, this is a very fraught area. People have different views okay. and, and there'll be different answers given in different cultures. Generally, I suppose in the, in the United States culture, particularly, and to some extent, Western European cultures, we do praise our children quite a lot, maybe even when the things they're doing are pretty minor. Um, other cultures, like the Chinese culture, um, is maybe the opposite, and they're often told to strive for what's better. Is there an answer? I am, well, having an appreciation of different cultures perhaps helps us to understand our own excesses at the moment. 
And um, I think uh, personally, self-esteem is not our problem today. Um, <clears throat> our problem is much more striving for genuine greatness. Yeah, and humility. Yeah, along with humility. Uh, that's right. Yes. Um, By the way, uh, hmm. in the Christian history, um, it's a big tradition of humil- humble, humility, and greatness going together. Hmm. Um, you know, Dante wrote the greatest poem in the history of the world, the Divine Comedy, and uh, and in his own poem, he makes himself the sixth greatest poet who ever lived. In his own poem, uh, and it's perf- and it's a perfectly just assessment. So Dante be an example of someone with Christian humility, but also uh, a self-assessment that would be shocking in another context, I think. Mm. Well, that's it. There, there, to my mind, there's some paradox when thinking about pride and humility. And I'm thinking of like a sort of football team where you've got a, a natural leader who's a captain who knows he's very, very good at football. Yeah. You know, everyone's always told him, but you can then foster um, the idea of of being of being humble and and for him to bring on the lesser players and put his arm around them, but Absolutely. then then he evokes uh, pride in those players that aren't doing so well. So that's right, that's it's right. Quite, it's and, kind of paradox. And and there are other examples of that. So um, in Britain, there's an officer training school, Sandhurst, mm. uh, and it's taught, interesting to talk to some of the graduates of Sandhurst because. Um, they're really emphasizing Christian leadership, maybe not always under that heading. Yeah. But, you know, a, um, a Christian officer should look after his men, should bring his men on, should make sure that they're settled before he settles himself, for example, if they're on some kind of campaign. So, yes, there's, there's, there's good leadership and we need those virtues of good leadership. I, I agree entirely, and um, well, that's, that segues quite nicely. It's sort of military um, schooling into something else I wanted to ask you about, and that's scorn. I'm, I've got another thing in front of me here. I've written a note: Job, um, my friends scorn me, my eyes pour out tears to God. Now, yes. I think this is particularly apt in many people's lives nowadays, and perhaps more magnified since the division of Brexit, of the Brexit vote, and all the subsequent divisive topics throughout COVID that were still very much dealing with and you know these are things that have genuinely destroyed family relations friendships working relationships romantic relationships both existing and potential because it's so profoundly upsetting and damaging to a person's mental stability to be roundly scorned by those who have yes. been their nearest and dearest and i i wonder what christianity can teach us or remind us about the power of scorn and how it should be deployed if at all deployed well, scorn is, uh, is, is quite evil because in Christianity, every human being is potentially or actually a child of God. I'll just repeat that. In Christianity, every human being is potentially or actually a child of God. Mm. So if you go around insulting human beings, that's um, worse than insulting the boss's son or daughter. Mm. You, you break, uh, there's a phrase that C.S. Lewis uses, you know, Next to the Blessed Sacrament, which is the Eucharist uh, in Christianity, next to the Blessed Sacrament, um, your your neighbour is the holiest thing present to your senses. So scorn is is something we're very cautious of, and we've got to be careful in our own lives not to scorn others and not to despise others. And part of the problem today is because everything is um, the worlds people live in are very online worlds. Does, we don't always see people face to face. It's very easy to 
be scornful of people anonymously. Yeah. Uh, and that's a terrible habit, you know, as if it's not another human being with the additional dimension that, that, that every human being is potentially or actually a child of God. Um, so it's a nasty old business and, uh, something we should each of us individually fight, um, the tendency mm. to scorn. And, and what do you think about the, those who are affected by scorn where, where scorn has not been there sort of before and they're taken, almost taken by surprise yes. that this scorn is being poured upon them because of they have, they don't see themselves as particularly changed in their nature. They're, they're going on the same ethical lines they always have been, but there's suddenly these ethical lines and these morals that they hold are being challenged by their nearest and dearest and they're, they're being scorned upon, you know? Yes. Um, well, it's painful, yes. And um, there are lots of stories uh, in scripture and in Christian history of, of people being scorned and suffering scorn. And our Lord Jesus Christ suffered scorn, you know, having been scourged, which was enough to kill many men. Um, he was um, spat upon and taunted by the Roman soldiers before he was crucified. So... Uh, the only thing I would say is that you know, people who are suffering scorn is you're not alone. You know, uh, you've got some uh, good company over the years. It's easy to say, not so easy to follow. It's easy to say words can't hurt us, but of course they can hurt us. And um, uh, these like the arrows that uh, hit us during the daytime. And uh, we should just be careful ourselves not to scorn others. I think that's, well, we can't change all the problems of the world, but we do have control over our own behavior. So to, to some extent, so we should ourselves resist the tendency to scorn and cultivate compassion for human beings. Yeah. I think the sense um, to retaliate can sometimes be quite overwhelming uh, right. when, you, when you feel under attack. And when you, you, you brought up Jordan Peterson before, and he had a very interesting thing to say during one of the Bible lectures, I think it was perhaps a yes. bit before when he rephrased or redefined um, the meek shall inherit the earth, and he redefined it as those who have a, have a sword but keep it sheathed. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, an- another way of saying that is the truth is a, a dagger, but there's no need to stab anybody with it. Right, <laughs> right. So yes, well, that's a great wisdom, yes. Is it all about um, that there are sometimes there are things we just must bear? There are some unfairnesses and affronts to our character that we just must bear? Yes, there are th- but life has suffering. Life has suffering. Uh, it's a shock if um, you haven't come across these things before. Yeah. Uh, and we all have to face those shocks in life. We have to face sometimes people attacking us, attacking our reputations. It's nasty when someone tries to destroy you. Well, that does happen, you know. And the challenge is to learn to cope with these things without letting them destroy us, you know, um, or having them darken our souls to the point where, you know, it's, it's it like warps our personalities. Um, and this is where history and context can help us because there's nothing new. There's nothing new in this. Uh, and you quoted the book of Job. That's a, was it 25 centuries old or so? The life of Christ, the life of many good people. And what's also very striking is that anyone who tries to achieve anything good in life is going to be attacked without question. 
Mm. Without question. Uh, also think about Winston Churchill, for example. Now, uh, he clearly made mistakes in his life, but I think it's a fair thing to say he helped to save the world in, 19, in 1940s, despite that. Uh, but uh, he's been, he's attacked regularly, you know. Um, Mother Teresa of Calcutta was attacked uh, about 30 years ago. A famous saint who used to uh, help the, um, the men and women on the streets in uh, in India who had a destitute or were dying, you know. So no matter what you do, you're going to be attacked. I, I guess it's important to try to to let praise and criticism ride over our heads a little bit. Because uh, both often, often both praise and criticism are not very well founded anyway, uh, and and don't try not to let them affect us too much. That comes with experience a bit. And Jordan Peterson, as you quoted uh, him earlier, I mean that man's been attacked viciously <laughs> in many different ways, yeah. but it hasn't it hasn't he hasn't stopped him. No, no, it hasn't, and it's really good to have him around and in decent health and still working. Yes, it is. Um, well, let me ask you about sacred things. Um, we're, we're all about sense making on this podcast, and yes, through my exploration into foundationism with my friend Carbon Mike, which is a, a political movement, he's the founder. I, I really do see value, especially in this era when so much of what we knew and agreed upon as a society seems to be under the pressure of, of much revision. Um, what do you think is the one sacred thing that we should all concur on and, and from which we can kind of take a, a breath together in, a, in agreement? Hmm. Well, let me step back a bit first. I think it's important to have sacred things. And it's one of the things that keeps society together. Uh, so when I was a teenager, I wondered, why do we have a monarchy in the United Kingdom? Because uh, the monarchs don't seem to do anything. It took me a long time to realise it's not their job. It's not their job to do anything. It's their job to be a kind of uncaused cause uh, around which uh, a society can unite. And on the whole, I think our monarchy does a good job of that. In the United States, traditionally they rally around the flag as, a, as an alternative to a monarch. And I've watched young American children sing to the flag as a sacred symbol. Yeah. Um, in American schools, but a flag doesn't have a face. Uh, so uh, personally, I, um, I've grown a, a fond of the monarchical principle in society, and certainly sacred things. Well, it helps to inspire so much if we've got sacred things: uh, art and music and literature, um, social structures. So I'm very fond of um, there's a building gradually being constructed in Barcelona called the Sagrada Familia, uh, the Holy Family. And it was started by an architect in the late 19th century. The architect died nearly 100 years ago, and the building still isn't finished. Hmm. Uh, but he said, my client is not in a hurry. Um, and this, <laughs> this building is astonishingly beautiful, uh, in my view. And it's drawn in people from all over the world. Japanese sculptures, um, modern structural engineering firms, resources from around the world. It's paid for entirely by donations of people going to visit the building. And it's gradually emerging. Uh, and this uh, Barcelona is a very secular city today. Uh, but gradually, out of this very secular city, it's emerging the most one of the most stunning 
sacred buildings, I think, uh, that's ever been constructed. And um, it's really amazing. So why is it important? Well, only for everything. <laughs> it's um, a principle around which we, we can unite uh, something to give um, life transcendent purpose beyond the present. It's very important. And, and really probably something to help keep our civilization going. Because without the sacred, we're just an association of mutual convenience. And that will that will crumble under pressure. I mean, those we've just described the American flag and the Sagrado Familia, is it called? Yes, that's right. Um, so th- this what, what one's a, a, a signal, an insignia, um, a symbol, and the other is a piece of architecture. Yes. But what about things that are sacred that are internal to us? Things that we can agree on without any moral distinction between us, like the, the sovereignty of the individual, perhaps, or the the, the right for one to decide what happens to their body, perhaps. Do you think we could agree on these basic things? Well, um, you're touching on very uh, deep issues here. And part of, of the problem is without um, a, a Christian principle, yeah. uh, it's very hard to agree on the things we should, we should regard as sacred. Okay. And... I suggest we're running an experiment, which has lasted several decades now, of can we build a good society uh, without uh, an explicit theological commitment. The jury is still out on that one. I mean, I have my own views about that, and people have their own views. I'm in dialogue regularly with a very famous atheist who understands the problem, but he doesn't have a solution. So uh, I can't offer you a solution um, uh, here and now. Would he uh, think to revise his view of the, the problem in order to possibly find other solutions, or is he a genuinely hard and fast atheist? He has an unusual mix of views. So um, one of them is that we're, we're a part of nature, but not just, but also apart from nature. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the dilemma for human beings, because we are a part of nature, but also apart from nature. Uh, we strive for transcendent things uh, beyond um, midi and material surroundings and reality. And so this man, who is an atheist himself, recognises that both those principles, that we are a part of nature and apart from nature. Uh, I don't, personally, I don't think he can fill in that space uh, of what that means, you know, and, and to decide on certain sacred principles around which we can unite. Because I don't think you can do that without God. Uh, but he's having a go. Oh, well. Um, well, having spoken uh, uh, about what we can essentially agree on or, or can't agree on, and also being part of nature, but apart from nature, I wonder if I could ask you about how an individual can move well in the world, can walk well in the world. What do you think are some of the fundamental kind of psychological tools with which a person can rely on to guide them on a righteous path and be used to themselves? and the beings that they share the planet with? How to live a good life. This is, of course, one of the oldest questions in in philosophy. There's a, a sort of classical pre-Christian answer, which the, which the Greeks came up with, um, which is really, uh, we should do everything to support the life of the mind. And so the life of the mind is very, very important for us. Uh, and it's, it manifests the highest human capabilities in many ways but i don't think that's our ultimate goal i think our ultimate goal is 
is love. That's what we're made for. And ultimately, it's friendship with God, which is, in the Christian understanding, that's what we should be striving for, uh, friendship with God. So I think we need to have that supernatural goal as well in order to live well naturally. Now, that's a controversial statement, so I accept people may dis- disagree with that. But we need to more than just live in the sense of survival. And I brought up the example of the Sagrada Familia, because that architect embarked on a project that would last long beyond his own lifetime. Mm-hmm. It didn't affect his own well-being very much. He lived very simply. He eventually lived on a camp bed in his own studio in the basement of the cathedral structure. So his whole life was building this cathedral, which he knew would not be finished until long after his death. Uh, that's that's having a transcendent vision beyond the immediate. And I think that's part of what we're made for as human beings, to have mm-hmm. transcendent visions. Now, in a very simple way, you know, raising children is one of the, is a, is a sort of, commitment to transcendence beyond our own lifetimes investing in institutions that will outlast us great universities libraries uh, works of art and so on all these are good things and, and they they satisfy us in ways more than 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 immediate pleasures so i think that's part of what we need to flourish as human beings to have that trans- to have a transcendent vision and i'll add one more comment from christianity that transcendent vision should involve friendship with God, which is, I think, what what we were ultimately made for. Mm. It's interesting that you, you point towards humans having discovered the future almost, and and what that's right. what that's yeah what that's done for us in our history. I mean, I wonder if those who were yes. painting cave paintings had the same kind of forward thinking. That's, that's lovely. That yes, me, yeah. It's not amazing. Yes, we're painting. Yes, we discovered a cave paintings in the Sahara, for example, of animals that long since vanished. Uh, and you know, when you paint something, you've, you've sort of captured it out of the flow of time. And um, I made, made an image that's, well, permanent by human standards. Yes, you could say that's a transcendent vision. Absolutely. Now, it is, it, it is an aspect of our existence which both raises us up but also gives us suffering. Because uh, once you have the transcendent vision, then you know all kinds of uh, tensions and problems arise as well. Uh, and and the Bible has that. You know, there's a Jacob who's encountered the Lord, uh, who wrestles with an angel, you know, and gets injured. Uh, so it's wrestling with this spirit of transcendence, as it were, yeah. um, which is you know, is painful. But once one has it, one will never relinquish it. Yeah, as as so well said. Well, moving from the glorious transcendent to uh, a far more darker topic, but really important one to apprehend. Otherwise, it could undoubtedly apprehend us, or would undoubtedly, and that's the nature of evil, where its power comes from and how it manifests. Now, I know that you've studied and thought about this, and I'd I'd like to ask where, in the physical world and and perhaps the spiritual, the otherworldly plane, you you identify it and and how we would oppose it oh gosh so evil yes it's it's a hard thing to understand that's the first thing and you want an image of that uh you and maybe many of your listeners may be familiar with the lord of the rings oh, very yeah the lord of the rings now one thing about the most evil creatures in lord of the rings is that they're all invisible 
you notice, is uncertain whether Sauron has a physical form, for example. Mm-hmm. It's left a bit ambiguous in the story. Uh, the black the black riders, they're only visible on their outer surfaces, yes. as it were. They wear black cloaks to give themselves shape when dealing with the living. And this transfers exactly into what you see in the world today. So uh, take a, a very evil state. I think that's unambiguously evil state, North Korea. North Korea, and I've been reading some terrible stories of people who escaped from North Korea. But North Korea has substance basically on its outer surface. It has a big arm, a big army, lots of artillery pieces, maybe nuclear weapons. Inside North Korea, it's a wasteland. And that's like the land of Mordor in The Lord of the Rings. It has mm. uh, gigantic defences. Inside, it's a wasteland. And that's an image of evil. It has no substance. Inside, it's, it's uh, a wasteland. Um, but it can appear evil. It can appear so strong. Uh, and very intimidating. So that's the, that's the first lesson. The beginning of evil. I mean, you, we talked earlier about pride and yeah. pride. Uh, that's a terrible song by Frank Sinatra. And uh, I did it my way. Mm. That's really where good and evil separate. Because the, the the going back to the Garden of Eden story and you know, the man and woman reach out for the fruit of the tree of knowledge uh, but what's interesting is they don't get anything they actually already know that it's good what good and evil are they've actually got one commandment don't eat the fruit of this tree uh, so they, they know already that, that um, uh, they've got a possession of the natural law they're not going to walk off cliffs that sort of thing and they also uh, have been given the one positive moral principle uh, don't eat the fruit of these trees. But they break that principle, and then they know themselves from the bitter experience that it's wrong mm. to eat the fruit of the tree. But they wanted to get that knowledge for themselves, not to trust in the Lord. Uh, and that's where, if you like, the root of the separation of good and evil starts. Uh, I did it my way, without you, thank you very much. By the way, it starts in young childhood. I remember seeing something amazing on a on a train about 20 years ago, there was um, a mother and a daughter, daughter about six years old. And the mother was um, very gently uh, asking the child to apologize for something she'd done. And the child was going insane. <laughs> she had a little fist and banging them on the chair. No, no, I won't. No, no, no. Ah, screaming. You might have thought the mother was torturing the little girl. But no, she was just gently saying, apologize. Because you've done, done something wrong, right? And the little battle was going on in the child's mind about whether she was going to listen to the mother and say sorry, or she was going to try to have it her own way. And mm. I could see, I could see the moral battle taking place, as it were, uh, in this little child's mind. Um, so the battle is there for all of us, I'm afraid, growing up. Um, uh, and but it's the story of the, the Garden of Eden which gives us the pattern. For, for those decisions. Yeah, the um, description of the scene with the mother and child reminds me of the worst bit of advice um, I ever got, and I took it at the time, and that is a uh, an ex-boss, who's one of the worst bosses I've ever had as well, so I shouldn't really have taken his advice, but he said to me one day, if you think you're right, you're right. And I was very impressed at the time. I thought that's such a strong 
<laughs> way of um, coming off. If you think you're right, you're right. But actually, it's, it's such a weak statement. It is, doesn't when it? you examine it, yeah. We've got, well, being corrected and uh, admitting we're wrong, that's that's very much an exercise of humility and also in greatness. You know, when I was studying for a doctorate in philosophy, I had just enough sense to listen to my supervisor, just enough sense. <laughs> but it was touch and go. Um, so I thank good. I know looking back at it, I'm so pleased I did listen. Yeah. But uh, it would have been quite easy to go the other way. Well, that's looking back. So let, let me ask you about, I know it's difficult to make predictions, but I also know that you've got some knowledge on the subject of predestination. So could you point that knowledge for us at the question of where you see Christianity by, say, the end of the century? Is the fate of Christianity predestined or can it go in several different directions depending on who subscribes and what the leadership emerges along the way? Um, I uh, Yes, I have written on the topic of predestination, but I, I, am, uh, I have a maximal view of human freedom. So it's like playing chess with someone who wants you to win. <laughs> I'll just repeat that. It's like playing chess with someone who wants you to win. Uh, that's our interaction with God in this world. So what will happen to Christianity by the end of the century? I've absolutely no idea. But I also know that's not my job. My job is to be faithful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I am faithful, I'll be fruitful. And and the fruitfulness is beyond anything we could imagine. Uh, so going back to the story of the Sagrada Familia Church in Barcelona, uh, this is um, that's one architect, one architect's vision. And today, tens of millions of people from around the world go to visit Sagrada Familia, even though it's an unfinished construction. That that man has definitely made an impact, and it's just one man. Uh, I went to the funeral, or well, part of the funeral events, some some of the funeral events surrounding John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, uh, who died, uh, let's see, beginning, I can't remember, 15, 16, 16 years ago. And what was amazing uh, was just, for, first of all, uh, millions of people came from around the world to, to the funeral, and hundreds of world leaders but that man, he was um, working in a Nazi stone quarry in the 1940s because the Poles were treated as slaves by the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was trained for the priesthood in secret, employed in a, well, getting some subsistence wage in a Nazi stone quarry. You, you would never have guessed that that man would impact the world the way he did and help to bring down the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, so one life can change the world, you know. Uh, there's there's no limit to what's possible, um, but it's with the grace of God. And and, and so uh, the main job I would say to, to to Christians particularly is is unity with God is what you need, uh, and there's no limit to your fruitfulness. Yeah, I I think about Christianity and I think about how it's subscription has waned um, throughout the last several decades and yes there is a re-emerging curiosity but I also when I when I hear you say that um, it's perhaps not our job to predict it's our it's our job to have faith in the moment and be good Christians in the moment and do what we're yes. doing yeah but I also can't help but think that if you are part of a uh, an institution that you believe is ultimately the, the institution that will benefit the world, 
there and it is under attack then isn't there some kind of strategizing or forward thinking that is necessary um we're not very good at doing strategizing it's the truth <laughs> um in terms of christianity we, we, we've been on the verge of defeat for 2000 years so right. we we're very bad at strategizing um but there are some particular problems in christianity um that have gone on for some centuries uh, I'd call one of them the Protestant Reformation. Uh, so mm. Christianity isn't one thing. It's um, the rump Catholic Church and then lots of little breakaway groups, all of whom say, I'll do it my way, thank you. But that's, that is very destructive. Um, it may be that they have to die off um, before we can properly flourish again. Um but we're still working through that story. Yeah. So, uh, and um, people are also, you know, if you ask the question, what is Christianity? Now, I would say Christianity is really Catholic Christianity, uh, but that's not the answer everyone would give. And and for some people, they they reject part of what Catholicism is about, or some of its teachings in different ways, and so on. So all that they've got to sort this out in their own minds. Um, and uh that's often quite a painful process yeah yeah well i i just uh penultimately before i ask you the last question i just did want to want to push this point um yes please do i should make another comment christianity has faced a few major challenges the last several centuries and they come in roughly 200 year blocks so in 1517 um luther um at least symbolically initiated the reformation in 1717, the Freemasons got going in London in a big way. In 1917, there was the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, and they represent three different stages, one of which is Christianity without the church. Uh, the second one is like religion without Christianity. And the third one is morality without religion. So there's been a stripping away of the basis of what I will quaintly call Western civilization uh, mm. for the last several centuries. Uh, and, we, and we're left with a, a kind of a, a rubble-strewn plane, culturally speaking. And as for us as individuals, we haven't chosen to be born into this situation, uh, but we can be faithful ourselves in, in, in the time we've been given. So, so going back to Lord of the Rings, there's a lot of lovely phrase from Gandalf. He says, uh, "We can't predict the future and uh, and the challenges that they will face, but we can do. We should do what we can with the time we've been given." Yeah, that's a great line of truism. Good old Gandalf. He mm. had all the best lines. Good old Gandalf, that's right. Well, it's not too far removed. Well, I just wanted to press this point of, of leadership. Um, and I've had, it's because of the, the emerging sense of curiosity that I feel and I see in, in many people around me. I've had two Anglican priests on the podcast to talk about what I call the wonder of wonderful faith. And I think this is actually part three, talking to yourself. And it, as I say, it's a theme resultant from my sense of re-emerging curiosity for Christian way of life. Among people who were either lapsed or, or hardcore atheists, you know, nonchalant agnostics, there are many types. But these have been drawn towards the teachings of, mm. of Jesus Christ, I think, but right. amongst other things, by a feeling of encroaching evil. So yes. I, 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 I get the sense, I really do, Andrew, that there, there may be swathes of fresh subscribers on the horizon. But the problem is... That I don't see much evidence of prominent Christian leadership in order to coax these people and guide them 
into the light, as it were. So my question is, do the Lord's emissaries like really exist or is it left to the individual to find his or her own way to God? I think we should certainly pray for good leaders and pray for the leaders we have. Uh, that's certainly true. Uh, and we've had some great leaders. Um, I mentioned John Paul II, who certainly made a huge impact on the world at the time that uh, he was Pope. You can't see much evidence of good leadership today. No, I can't either. But the hobbits will carry on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, if the uh, the great are busy elsewhere uh, or not or not unavailable for this particular for these battles today, uh, the the little people will will struggle on. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you very much. Well, my last question to you, and I'm, this is the first time I've asked this question, but I'm going to ask it to all of my guests because. Uh, it's a uh, it's a term that everybody knows, but I'm not sure we're all on the same page. So, what does the Enlightenment mean to you? <laughs> a fake description. Interesting. Uh, a couple of reasons for that. First, um, a lot of things that Enlightenment claims for itself uh, should not be attributed to the Enlightenment. I, I, I saw an encyclopedia once, on the, I think it's called the Encyclopedia of the Enlightenment. And they were claiming things like hospitals and universities and you know, rediscovery of classical learning. And I thought, this is all rubbish. So <laughs> universities, so we had 50 universities in Europe before the Reformation, including Oxford and Cambridge, by the way. Um, mm. We had hospitals. Uh, that, that's largely a Christian thing. It goes back to the late Roman Empire when the Christians built the first hospitals. Um, this is not an Enlightenment thing. So they they have sort of gathered around themselves a sense uh, that they have uh, that the heirs of the French Revolution have done all the good things in life. No, this is just not true. So I think so. It's a fake word, I think. And also, there's a lot of destruction associated with the Enlightenment. So what was the French Revolution famous for, Danny? I'll tell you one thing it was famous for, it was cutting people's heads off. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I mean, on, on an industrial scale, they found a, a very fast way of executing people with the, with a Madame Guillotine, and they, they employed Madame, but they put Madame Guillotine to work on a massive scale. So this age of, of human reason began by cutting off the head of, of hundreds and thousands of people. So as Jesus Christ warns us, by their fruits, you shall know them. And uh, we should be very careful. So the Enlightenment, uh, I regard it as a dangerous fake, I'm afraid. The good principles of the Enlightenment, I think, are taken from others. You know, importance of learning, uh, the power of science and so on. Yes, fine, all, all those things. We don't have to do that associated with this movement, um, which is called the Enlightenment. Hmm. Thank you for that. As I say, I think it's it's a term that needs some reinspection. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Um, there's a battle of impressions that goes on a lot in society, and uh, certainly one of the things I've found with Christianity is the way it's denigrated and hated. That's why one reason I you know I'm going to give I give talks at schools. I'm going to give a talk at a school later today. And one thing I'll mention you know is the great Christian inventions in science, mm. including genetics including the Big Bang Theory, which was invented by a Catholic priest, Georges Lemaitre. The BBC almost never mentions that fact, by the way. The uh, first woman professor of mathematics, Maria Agnesi, was appointed by a pope 
1750. Uh, there's all kinds of the wonderful stories uh, that people are just not aware of. And sure, Christianity or people who are Christians have done plenty of evil things. But on the whole, I think we produce a civilization people want to live in uh, more than any other probably on Earth today. Mm. Well, I'll take those notes you've just given us. And I'll leave them in the description in the podcast so people can okay. do their own research. Um, to end the podcast, I wonder if you would be so kind as to lead us in a short prayer. Yes, well, I don't know the prayer background of, of your listeners, but um, the safest will be to just um, pray the Lord's Prayer uh, that Jesus Christ taught his disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Andrew. Where can people find your work and lectures online if they want to hear more from you, which I'm sure they do? Um, well, we've got a website called the uh, for the Ian Ramsey Centre for Science and Religion at the University of Oxford, Ian Ramsey Centre for Science and Religion, and that uh, has a lot of videos by myself and my colleagues, uh, so there's, there's a it's a huge amount of material. There's a huge wealth of material there. Excellent. Okay. Right. Well, thank you very much. It's been great to talk to you, and I hope to talk to you again sometime in the future. You're very welcome. Cheers, Andrew. I'm off to